Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. This is our Giro d'Italia Stage 12 recap and a Stage 13 preview at the end, brought to you by our partner, LaCole, who produce performance road cycling apparel. They provide the kit to Bahrain McLaren, and it must be a pretty damn good kit because we saw Mark Perdun in the breakaway today for Bahrain McLaren, the Ukrainian, and he was one of the only men in the break and in the GC group too that was happy just wearing a Lacole gilet uh, base layer and a, and a jersey, whereas everyone else was having a ride up as much as possible. He looked pretty comfy in that. It didn't seem to affect him at all. So... If you want to get a discount on LaCole Kit, 15% discount, go to their website, www.lacole.cc, L-E-C-O-L.cc, type in code, all caps, L-R-G-I-R-O-1-5, L-R-G-I-R-O-1-5 at checkout to get 15% off. On to stage 12, it was a pretty interesting stage profile, except for the finale and We've been talking, Benji and I, back and forth with uh, La Flamme Rouge offline about what a shame we thought it was that they just made the flat at the end a little bit too long. It's a very symmetrical profile from Chesinatico to Chesinatico. They go to the coast, so on the coast they go inland into the hills and then back when their way back uh, into Chesinatico to the finish. It's 205 kilometres, not quite long enough to be a truly monstrous stage. There was a rain forecasted today, a little bit of wind too on some of the climbs. And it was just constant climbs of 6Ks, 6%, 5Ks, 8%, 5Ks, 6%, 4Ks, 5.5%. The longest one was 9Ks. I think the Madonna di Pugliano, 9Ks, 6%. And the Barbotto 5Ks at 8% was a little bit nasty in the uh, first half of the race. But yeah, about eight major climbs, nine major climbs, not much flat at all. The only problem was for really whether there was going to be any GC action was the last climb was probably the easiest of the day. The uh, San Giovanni uh, Galilea climb uh, wasn't that difficult. It had a difficult start. But then it was a descent into the finish, and it from the crest of there to the finish about thirty kilometers, which is a long, long time to hold a to hold a margin of say five to seven seconds, which is probably the most you could reasonably expect to gain on that climb. But a breakaway went as expected, and like we've been saying, all these stages, everyone's got free license to get in the break, and none of the GC teams care at all about the breakaway. So it's a good day any day to get in the breakaway this year. The amount of kilometers you stay in the front in the fast group in a group that is under 10 riders is counting towards a breakaway classification. And today is a bit of a special day because today not a single soul in the breakaway deserved any points there because the group has to be under 10 riders for it to count for the classification. And that makes me question if that's actually a good way to look at it because they're probably doing this to prevent that a rider that is in the front group seen as the peloton then or an elite group is counting towards that. But today it was clearly just a breakaway and the riders, I don't know if it counts for like the last two kilometers when the group is smaller, but I just know that 
when you're with 14 in the front group, then it won't count fully for the classification. So my initial question before I dive into the riders that are in the breakaway, do you feel like this is a good classification or a good way to analyze who is the best escapee, considering there are stages where someone might be in the break all day that don't even count because the group has 11 riders or something? I mean, at least it's got an objective measurement compared to just the overall combativity in the Tour de France, the most aggressive rider, uh, which actually did go to the correct rider, went to Hirschi, but yeah, it, I don't mind it. I mean, I feel like there should be some reward for getting in the break all day. It's not easy just, I guess, sitting on in breaks all day either, uh, doing it back to back to back. And who's leading it at the moment, Benji? I, I forgot who's actually leading it. One of the breakaway contenders of yesterday as well, Mattia Bais, ahead of Marco Fraporti, and Salvatore Puccio. So three Italians in the front there, not a real surprise in an Italian race and in the Giro for sure. And knowing that it's a rider that is from a pro county team like Androni, it's probably great for the team as well. Fraporti being second as well. Those riders are very close to each other. Mattia Baez has 451 and Fraporti has 428. Now, neither of the two were in the breakaway today, but we had some riders in there that were already in breakaways in previous days. And some new faces, the likes of a Mark Padun, who we didn't see in previous breakaways yet, if I recall correctly. Benedetti, who won a stage in a Grand Tour in previous years. Not sure which one. I think it was the Giro. Giro breakaway last year, yeah. Okay, Joey Roshkov as well. We've seen him already on the stage. Dowsett won. Then we've got Simon Clark, who was in the break yesterday as well. And yeah, he's for EF Education first. A special one, Albert Torres. He's a bit of a... A bit more of a sprinter, actually. He did track on, like, in those circles. What do they call it? Velodromes? Velodrome, <laughs> those <yeah>. circles. <laughs> Albert Torres. And it was clear that he's better at sprinting because every single climb he was, like, wiggling from the left to the right of the road. <laughs> zigzagging. <laughs> yeah. It was, like, a 4% climb. And he was zigzagging left and right all over the whole road. It was a bit of a <laughs> embarrassing to see, but... If it works for him, I, I won't be calling it out, but it was just funny. But he wasn't in that breakaway too long. There were some better climbers. Victor Campenarts, I'm not talking about a better climber per se, but he was in there as well for NTT and could come and play later because he obviously has Pozzo Vivo in the peloton who might want to do something on this kind of stage. Jonathan Narvaez, he was one of the riders I've been tipping a lot on hill stages and... The one time that he's in the break when looking good for a potential stage win, like today, I end up not doing my pizza slices, so it's a bit unfortunate. He would have probably been somewhere in there. I don't know if I would have put him three pizza slices, but anyway, Rishese, he's uh, normally a lead out of Gaviria, but since Gaviria is not doing too much at the moment, he wasn't great at the start of the Giro, but also due to his crash a few days back in that stage that Sagan won, well... He obviously didn't sprint too well either because of that yesterday, or even just in general, not even because of the crash. I don't know what the state of that crash is, how hot that was. Also, Etienne van Empel in the breakaway. That's the rider that rode into the barriers together with Wackerman from Vinizabu uh, in the first week somewhere on that stage, the Mar one, where the helicopter caused the barriers to go in, into the road. And we also had Simon Pelot from Droni. We've had him in the break a lot. Very noticeable that he's a good descender boaro that is astana and we also had francois bidar i'm kind of surprised that we see bidar in the breakaway here and then we haven't seen bouchard too much i think he attacked once on the stage that i don't even know which stage i think it was on the etna 
or on yeah i don't know which stage it was we saw him attack at one point like in the second half of a stage somewhere away from the peloton but not more than that the kom jersey of the welter a bit of a disappointment anyway that's a list of the breakaway riders they got away quite quickly not too much fight for it and had about 40 seconds after 176 with 176 kilometers to go not after 176 kilometers but that gap blew out so quickly and the moment that I started watching, they had a gap of a solid 13 minutes to 12 minutes. So I thought the break was going to make it. That was with about 120 kilometers to go. And in the breakaway, one thing became very clear. There was one person that cared a lot about the KOM points. That was Simon Pelot. Every single time he was riding away to get those points. And in the descent, they wouldn't really catch him too easily because his descent is pretty good. And he's a bit of a daredevil, kind of a funny guy as well. And on Twitter as well, anyway. He was pretty strong in the breakaway, but eventually on the climb itself, he started to get called once again by the team, by, um, well, the other breakaway contenders, not the team. And it became noticeable that there were a few riders that are better climbers than others. The likes of Torres was very clear that he wasn't one of the best climbers in that group. Campanats was pretty fast off the back as well, but he was trying to keep himself between the breakaway and the peloton because... In the peloton, we saw NTT move forward, and I'll throw it to you for the GC action. Yeah, thankfully NTT tried something today. Now, I'm not sure if it was the orders of Bjarne Risa in the team car. I presume must have sanctioned it, or Domenico Pozzavivo wanting to try something. But thankfully, they did pace for a fair bit, because otherwise it looked like, well, it obviously was going to be a breakaway win um, with that 13-minute gap, and it was looking concerning that the GC teams were just going to roll around the course and chill and not really, yeah, be no tension between them at all. And, yeah, NTT were clearly trying something. They paced, they paced, I think, for nearly 100 kilometres today. And um, the breakaway wins, so I'll just I'll finish with what happened with the GC contenders first so that their narrative can be a bit, more, a bit easier to follow. The breakaway wins, but the... GC contenders, they whittled that gap down to seven, six minutes, and it even went down to like four minutes, it said, but I never trusted that time gap because it went back out to six minutes about a minute later. So these zero time gaps, you can't really trust them. All these climbs, NTT are pacing, and they're, they're dropping riders. They're dropping pretty much, they dropped all of Trek except for Nibali. Everyone from Sunweb gone except for Hindley and Kelderman. Just Micah Conrad there. Bill Bow was there, I think, but he had a mechanical at some point, but he made his way back. Perensteiner was there, and then he wasn't there again. Quickstep, actually, probably the strongest team after NTT. They had Masnada there, I think Knox, uh, Peter Seri, I assume it was him, Benji, on the front pacing a fair bit at the end um, as well. And, yeah, who else did Quickstep have? Because they had a really strong performance today. Um, it was Mikel Honoré. So I lie, it was not James Knox. Supporting Almeida today was actually Masnara and Mikel Honore, who's having a very good Giro d'Italia uh, Honore. He's only 23 years old. He's had a couple of, yeah, what, a third and a seventh. Now Now he's performing really strong duties for Almeida on a stage like this. Pretty impressive from him. Nice guy too. But yeah, Almeida in pink, they're just trying to protect him, I presume, because who knows when this Giro could end. Almeida's now joint favourite with uh, Nibali, Fulsang and Kelderman because if this Giro gets cancelled at the second rest day, 
and he gains enough time on the ITT and doesn't lose it on Piancavallo, then yeah, he could. It's conceivable that he could win the Giro. Um, I would have financial interest in that myself. So full disclosure, but NTT pacing drops all the other domestiques. Just a, a small group of GC contenders, fifteen to eighteen guys with like sixty k's, fifty five k's to go, and then they get to the uh, last climb of the day. It was steep at the start, the Garolo climb, actually quite steep. It's raining very heavily. Everyone's cold. Everyone's rugged up in jackets. Uh, well, not everyone. Pozzavivo didn't have a jacket on until the last 10 kilometers. And then Pozzavivo attacked. And he had to attack because he'd had his team pacing all day. And nothing, it wasn't that strong an attack. And he didn't try twice either. And then he went to the back of the group after he'd been brought back. So... I have a feeling that Pozzovivo didn't have the legs he thought he had today. I don't think it was just a testing attack either. I think because otherwise, why would he have gone to the back of the group? Uh, maybe he just tried once and then went to get a jacket, but he didn't get a jacket, so it didn't make sense to me. And the man who was bringing him back, Benji, was Ruben Guerrero for Education First, who was riding 100% today as a domestique for his Portuguese compatriot, Ua Almeida, which is, it was kind of, he's also wearing a blue jersey, so he looked like a quick-step rider because he's wearing the blue Maria Azura KOM jersey, and the quick-step boys were all in their big blue uh, rain jackets. So he looked like one of the team, and he was closing down Pots of Evo's attack with Almeida on his wheel. Um just pretty pretty funny to see. Or do you think he was actually going for KOM points at the top of that last climb? I don't know. I don't think any KOM points were still available, but I could be wrong in that. Yeah, it's a fourth cat climb, so I sincerely doubt it. Rider can always make stupid moves and then be seen as cooperating. But then again, one could be cooperating and use the stupid thought as an excuse for it. So yeah, it, it was curious. Uh, I'll leave it at that. I think that Guerrero... Closing down attacks by Pozzo Vivo is a bit odd to see for sure. And he's definitely not dubbed there in GC, so he shouldn't be doing that. That's the simple explanation here. I'm 100% convinced that Guerrero, I'm not going to be as diplomatic as Benji, I'm 100% convinced that he was working for Almeida because go and watch when the GC group rolls across the finish line um, and... Almeida is there with Guerrero, and Guerrero reaches across multiple times to try and give a fist bump to Almeida, like, job done. And Almeida's looking at him like, what are you, what are you doing? And I think Almeida wasn't feeling too good in the cold, so I'm convinced that he was working for him. But Pozzavivo wasn't able to get away. Long story short, the GC contenders all roll together down that descent and finish as a group. No one gains uh, or lost any time today, I don't believe. Um, because, yeah, Pozzavivo tried that one attack. No one else had any appetite for it, and the top 10 stays exactly the same except for Fulsang moving up to 10th because Pannsteiner, the Bahrain, got, uh, Austrian ride for Bahrain, moved, uh, lost a fair bit of time today, so he moves down to 14th. But back to the breakaway with Benji, that's basically all the GC news for today. On the last ascension where Pozzavivo was attacking, or just a tad before that, we had three riders that were showing up at the front as the rest was unable to follow. And those were the likes of Jonathan Narvaez, also Mark Patton, and Simon Clark. Clark was the final rider to drop from the pair. And we had two riders left. That was Patton versus Narvaez. They looked pretty equally strong. I felt like on the climbs it felt that 
McFadden was a bit stronger, but we got to keep in mind, from my history, I think that Nervais just plainly has a better sprint. I think I can recall a sprint with Patton in La Vuelta, 2018 or 2019, where he was out-sprinted by Dylan Van Bale on one of the breakaway stages where Nibali was in the break and worked for Patton a bit. That was surprising, but might have been last year. I just don't know. Anyway, Narvaez is on paper the better sprinter. He won a similar stage as this in Copia Bartali, but then again, that was with lesser quality surrounding him in the breakaway here as well. So I thought Narvaez would make it if both of them hit the line together, but that was not going to happen because in the descent of that final climb, we had, well, a bit of bad luck for one of them. Mark Patton was off the back and he had a bit of, of a puncture, I'm guessing. I heard something from the Ineos guy, um, Diaz or something of Narvaez, that it was something with a wheel issue that the Patton had. But I don't know why the Ineos Diaz would know that. So a bit of curious, but... Apparently, Narvaez asked his DS whether he should wait, and eventually he didn't do that, because he kept on riding, kept on riding. Patton came closer and closer, though, afterwards. I thought at a certain point he might actually make it back, because on the flat section, he just had a bit of engine. But I think that Narvaez was playing the long game, and that Patton might have overstepped himself a bit in the initial chase, because... The moment the gap went down to a good 15 seconds, it started rising again. It started slowly but surely rising again. And eventually Narvaez went straight for the line and took his first GC and World Tour victory. So what a victory for the young man, Ecuadorian. So uh, yeah, that country is definitely moving up in cycling. That is for sure. And Narvaez, we've spoken about him before. Uh, in general, I think that he's a rider that is slightly underrated at the moment. But after the Giro victory... He's probably not that anymore. I think he was great at Tour de Wallonie. He was great at Copia Bartali, which he won. I think he got a stage win and getting third on another stage behind the likes of Pascal Inkhorn in a bit of an uphill sprint there as well. So he's a fast guy as well. And I think we're going to hear more of him in the future. He had a bit of a, a troubled past in the sense that he started at the Koenig, was great at Tour of Columbia, I think two, three years ago. And last year he was a bit less, and now he's finally popping his head out again. So, pretty cool to see that. Yeah, if you want to, if you see a few Ecuadorians on the start lift of a race, and it's raining, it's cold, and it's hilly, they're always a good shout. It's apparently in, in Ecuador it rains constantly. They don't actually do well in the heat. Apparently, like Carapaz and Co, not great in the heat because it's never actually that cold up in the mountains in Ecuador particularly where Carapaz is from. I remember watching a documentary in Spanish, didn't really understand it except for um, just basically looking at where he where he's come from. So a typical stage like that today for Novice, and he looked very comfortable in the rain. I do have to say, I think Padun was the strongest in that big breakaway today, and he made, he made mistakes continually for the best part of three hours. He would... In the middle climbs, when it was clear that the breakaway was going to win and the cooperation broke down because the riders realised, like, we don't need to pull cohesively now. We've got a 13-minute gap. I can hold a bit back now. And why would I pull in a group of 15? So that started happening. And Roscoff was kind of alive to it. Same with Narvaez and Clark. Narvaez wouldn't really pull that much. He would 
follow moves from other riders. He, I think, attacked eventually. Um, but Perun did this thing where it's the worst of both worlds. He would surge kind of hard when he did his pull on the climbs and was clearly stronger than the other riders. He'd get a nice little gap, actually, of five to seven metres, proper separation off the wheel. He'd then look back and then just stop and kind of slow up. And I'm like, well, what's the point of that? Are you riding to extend the gap to the GC group or the peloton? Because if you want to do that, just ride a bit smoother. And if you want to attack, then why get a gap and then sit down? And he, he got these gaps and sat down on many, many occasions. He would then have Roscoff, after he pulled, would then attack him. Because obviously, with a group that large, you've got to thin it out again. Once it's become clear that you're going to stay clear of the, of the peloton, you don't need a group of 15 anymore. And you, you need to thin it out, especially if you don't have a great sprint like Padun or Roscoff, maybe. That was going to be their plan, and that's why there were attacks from Clark on descents, Roscoff initially on the climbs, and Nardavice on uh, one of the second-to-last climbs, which then a few of those moves Padun missed, and then he had to chase on his own. He had riders on his wheel chasing Roscoff, and he bridged, he bridged to him easily, but still burning cows in a cold day. And then he followed the move of Nardavice, and then he was pulling on the probably the second-to-last and last climb and then the descent, the last descent before he punctured or whatever he happened, happened to him, he was pulling 80% for Navais, which makes no sense, right? Like, Navais is the guy with the stronger kick and the quicker finisher. So why? And they're probably, they had a good gap on Clark. I didn't understand it. Uh, and we were, I think, this is not just 2020 hindsight. We were saying this a lot for a long time during today's stage that he had the best legs, I thought, and... You saw a similar thing maybe in 2018 World Champs Road Race where he was he was up there with the big boys, with Hirschi, Fjord Lambrecht, uh, Pagacha, etc. Sorry if I'm missing anybody. And, yeah, he was doing a little bit of this sort of thing too. And maybe, yeah, the, the puncture is an inopportune thing to happen or the mechanical, but maybe he got that gap down to eight seconds, right? If he's just ridden smarter and just ridden at least 50-50 with Navais or just yeah, not had to close as many gaps he didn't have to or gone clear earlier, etc. If, if just any of that had happened, maybe he closes that extra eight seconds on no advice and uh, is able to actually contest the, the the final of the stage. But unfortunately, no GC action and no advice wins. Deserved win, but still will denied the big shootout at the end between the two of them in head-to-head because of that mechanical. So still an interesting stage. I think if they had to draw up the route again, they would uh, chop off. I'm pretty sure they'd chop off that last 30, 30 kilometers of flat because it definitely disincentivized the GC guys from doing anything. No one except Pozzavivo was interested in doing anything today, and I think a lot of them were just in survival mode um, given how cold it was. And uh, we got to see all their all their rain jackets. But, um, yeah, anything else from this stage, Benji? Did you notice anyone looking particularly uncomfortable in the cold? And wet, because we're going to see more of this weather in this year's Giro. Not really. I do want to talk about a bit in the peloton that I felt some riders were extremely isolated. Did you notice that as well? Yeah, I did. Uh, particularly Nibali, to be honest. Um, it's not looking good for him on the hard days coming ahead. The lack of a Ciccone, who, due to COVID, obviously, pre-Giro, was not really in the form that he should have been in. 
Fortis Giro is really playing a, a role. And I think that Brambia fell as well in one of the uh, earlier stages in this Grand Tour. So I think he's lost quite a few riders in the team. Peter Reining with that bottle issue, just like Thomas did. So that's three riders that are not, well, two not there, really. Because I can't really count Ciccone in the form that he's riding in right now. And for the rest of the team, it's not the best team surrounding him. And I think that it's clearly lacking on stages like these. And for the high mountains, it might be even worse, to be honest. But it's clear that a team like NTT, who has never really been in a position like this, are really showing that they can be in a position like this. And I think they're doing a really good job at supporting Pozzo Vivo, a rider that was destined to be super domestique in previous years at the likes of Bahrain for Nibali. So, yeah, it's curious. I am very much looking forward to seeing what the upcoming bigger stages do, but I'm afraid that's not for the next time because on the 13th stage, the next one we go from Serbia to Monselice, we've got a stage of 192 kilometers, basically Carpaccio flat until the last... 40-ish kilometers, then we've got two hills in the terrain, we've got the Rocolo climb, which is 4.3 kilometers with 7.8% average, and that is with a good 30 kilometers to go, and then we go down, we've got a, a 5 kilometer flat section after that climb, and then a steeper one, which is the Calaone, which is 2 kilometers at 9.9%, so I'm curious if anybody's going to try and use that, we got to keep in mind that the crest lies at a good 16 kilometers from the line. So it's not too close to the line either, but it's not overly far either. I think that it's going to be a quest for the likes of Abora to try and drop Demar here. Yeah, Sagan is my pick for tomorrow. Um, even I haven't really seen, I picked, I think, Nibali for this stage in my preview, um, if I recall correctly, because... Yeah, I just thought <laughs> thought he'd try something on the final <laughs> climb, but he doesn't. He doesn't have the team for that at the moment, or the legs. So I don't see that happening. And Sagan is climbing on these shorter climbs well, so I think Sagan. And he, I don't think Demar that ten percent, two Ks at ten percent, bit worrying for him. And his teammates are going to get dropped before he does. Scotts and Guarnieri, etc. So I think. The Mar will get dropped and it'll be Sagan if he shows the legs he had the other day. If not, Diego Ulisi. Who's another who's a a low key dark horse quick man who can get over a climb? Someone different. We need someone different that can win a stage here. Um I would have liked Luca Vakum, <laughs> maybe, but he's it's a shame he you know, he could have obviously won five stages by now, but he he crashed out. What about what about Almeida, Benji? Do you think it's or do you think it's not going to be that hard and Sagan will be fine? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be that hard. I think we've seen on that stage that Sagan won that he can survive a nine percentage climb of two kilometers, and I don't think that we're going to have big teams fighting for it in the sense that I don't think a, a Nibali will attack either or something like that. We've seen on all the stages so far that when it comes to the GC riders, the descending abilities are in two stories. We've got the likes of a Sakarin who is horrendous, so three stories technically. Fulsang who is pretty bad at descending throughout this Giro. I've I've been really surprised about it. And one of the best descenders, I would say, that I didn't see coming before the Giro would be a Pozzo Vivo. Because every single time we see Nibali making that move in the 
elite group, we see that Pozzo Vivo is easily in his wheel. And if it's the other way around, if Pozzo Vivo is in front, we see that Nibali's on a bit of a gap. This could either be because he is not 100% able to follow it through the corners, which I'm not sure about. Nibali's a pretty good descender, but Pozzo Vivo definitely not being underrated here. And I think that the reason that Nibali can't win this stage is because I don't see him dropping Pozzo Vivo in the descent here, because I also don't think that that descent is overly technical. It seems like the percentages are much lower than the Ascension. That's already a very good part, but... According to the map, I don't see a reckless amount of corners on it, so that's good for the safety of the riders, I guess, and for the overall possibility of sprinters actually making over it as well. I am going to go very risky, and I'm going to say that Arno de Mars survives this one. <laughs> um, I'm going to do the opposite that you did on stage 10 and say that today he can actually survive it on, on this. The climbs are not super hard. I don't know. It's going to be tough, but I'll give it a go. Arno de Mar is my pick. It's a shame they made the finish so far from that final climb. Um, my my lock for top three is Davide Ballerini for a top three. Yep. I think, I I think that's as, as close to it. I'm much more confident about that because um, he's, he's come podium in Memorial Pantani. Piemonte, and then he's, he's quick to second in Brussels Classic by Merlier in uh, that's this year. So I think he could do very nicely tomorrow's stage and wouldn't be surprised if Ballerini won either. Probably not going to be betting on Sagan or, or Demar, but I will have a little look at what Ballerini's odds might be because there might be a bit more value there. Because Sagan was, you know, Sagan was the favourite for today's stage, Benji, in the betting markets. He was, really? Uh, yeah, he was 9-1. to one. So that was a bit wild. But going back to just quickly rounding off what you said about NTT, big shout-out. People have been telling me to do this for a while. Ben O'Connor, the Australian at NTT, he finished same time as Pozzavivo and the GC contenders today. So very impressive work from O'Connor. He's looking, yeah, looking really, really good. And so is Sobrero. Campanas did a good job. Mainchies, I think, is still a little bit under the weather. But yeah, Ben O'Connor, hats off. About O'Connor, didn't he like get in a top 10 position at the, at the end of a Giro in 2018 or something? I'm looking at it right now. Nah, he was up there until he DNF'd in a certain stage 19. I think he was in GC in a position of 12th at that point, so on 7 minutes and a half, which is kind of crazy. But I swear I remember Ben O'Connor doing something better in a Grand Tour at a certain point, or maybe that was what I was referring to. But in general, yeah... I feel like 2019 was definitely not his year, and he's been coming back a bit since 2018, where he was better. Take any ex extra love for the Australians on the podcast, particularly from you, Benji. <laughs> I was going to ask you for you're the you're the man with the facts. I'm the man with the conspiracies and the rants. How many positive COVID tests of riders have we had? in this year's Giro d'Italia so far? We had three positive tests of riders. That is Yates, Kreisweig, and Matthews, of which Kreisweig's second test was a positive as well. Matthews' second test was negative, so don't take my word for it. I'm not a medic or anything. I'm not a scientist either. I try to find the facts in what I can find on the internet, but 
we all know that the internet has a lot of bullshit on it, definitely in these days. So I believe that there's also false negatives, and I'm curious whether the protocol that is being held by the Jiro is positive towards those as well. Because if you've got a negative test in the Tour de France, you're not being retested. If you got a positive test in the Tour de France, you were being retested. And what if your second test is then a false negative? Then you're still in the race. Yeah, I feel like I'm unsure whether false negatives are being looked after, but that's probably not what you were going to refer to. <laughs> oh, I was just trying to line up a rant um, and just trying to ease our way into it. Listen, the Giro, the hotel situation, that's bullshit. Uh, Jos van Emden mentioned that on the cycling podcast and other riders have mentioned that to me. Before even that, before even Van Emden mentioned that, they mentioned to me, they're like, holy fuck, mate, you should see what's going on at the hotels and stuff. It's so the guys who've ridden the tour as well, they're like, this is pretty different. So obviously, probably RCS not doing as good a job as ASO. ASO obviously set a pretty high standard, and I think got to give them some credit. Flanders Classics, too, by the way. Give them some credit for the absence of any spectators on the roads, really, that I saw at the Flanders Classics races recently, and the safety's been pretty good at those races as well. Um, Ackerman crash, not their fault. ASO, barely any, only a few positive tests at the Tour. I think there has to be some sort of going into the race, accepted level of risk that okay we're doing this massive sports event with like a thousand people involved it would be almost impossible for no one to test positive during a pandemic so when for people to then cry etc when there's a couple of positive tests which get found by the testing and then those riders get isolated and there's a protocol in place people be like oh my god how could this happen it's like well actually pretty likely that that would happen um aso probably did a better job making sure it was less likely that it happened but still if if you thought that all these grand tours and cycling races were going to go ahead this year without any riders contracting covid then in the middle of europe right now then you're delusional and then the next question then is well what is your risk tolerance for the level of covid tests in the peloton is it one rider test positive you've got to shut down the race I don't think I don't think that. I don't think most people would think that. Is it ten riders? Is it ten percent of riders? Like where do you draw the line? Um because with RCS there don't really seem to be <laughs> any definitive rules. Uh it seems to be like they're saying last man standing, which is obviously I don't agree with that. Um I also think there should be daily testing. So maybe that's economically not possible, but I, I think there should be daily testing, just about it. Or at least every second day, not just the rest days. Um, we saw that with Yates. Like Yates, if they'd been testing every two days, he would have been found quicker. And maybe the other guys at Mitchelton, the staff members wouldn't have contracted COVID. But the level of positive tests in the riders compared to the tour, not that high. I don't I don't know why people are losing their mind right now. And the amount of virtue signaling that is going on, um, and this is why ITV, if you're listening, I'm mad at you for making me get Twitter. So you could shout me out because fuck me, Twitter, the amount of virtue signaling on Twitter about this is unbelievable. So you got, I don't know why people and journalists allow themselves to be a mouthpiece for whatever Jonathan Volters says, because 
about a week ago, he openly acknowledged that he lied about the jersey submission to the UCI. And I know that's not a big deal, right? But he clearly uses the platform to just fucking whatever his own agenda is. He's for the, the Palace jersey thing with education first he was like how could they find us we did everything right and then the next day he's like oh yeah but but we knew right we didn't do everything right because we withheld some aspects of the design so we didn't submit the full design to the uci so the uci actually under their rules were correct to find us because we didn't do the right thing but then the previous day he's like oh what an injustice that they we did everything right so i mean that says it all really i know it's a small thing but still then he Eurosport published a piece saying there's a proposal. <laughs> this is what this doesn't make sense, right? There's a proposal from Education First. They've written to the UCI saying the Giro must be stopped, not today, not today, but on the weekend, on the second rest day. So I don't know how that makes sense. If it's not safe for your riders to race, if it's not safe for your workers to participate in this event because you deem it, and you, you, you might have more insight than I do about what's going on. So you could be very correct in saying this is an unsafe work environment. If that's true today, why don't you pull out your riders today? I don't know. Um, doesn't really make much sense to me. They've already got a couple of stage wins, I think, or stage wins. Yeah, two stage wins, Guerrero and Caicedo. Guerrero's in the blue KOM jersey. Um, but, yeah, they said that, uh, reading out, they wrote a letter to the UCI saying it will be expected that further illness will result from COVID in this year's Giro. It will be better for this year on the UCI World Tour if the end of the Giro is done in a systemic, holistic way versus a chaotic withdrawal on a team-by-team basis. Now, Jumbo Visma didn't have to withdraw. Sunweb haven't withdrew. You don't have to withdraw based on one positive test. Sunweb, uh, Jumbo Visma withdrew because they... <laughs> their leader was out so fuck it like why would they continue Mitch and Scott had quite a few COVID tests amongst the riders and staff I think and also similarly didn't really have any other aspirations left in the race with Yates out Sunweb were like we got Kelderman second on GC <laughs> we ain't pulling out um, so then that doesn't really make sense to me that that so what you you cancel it on the second rest day what if no one tests positive on the second rest day what, do you still cancel it? That makes no sense. And then your man's come back on Twitter, Voltus, to say, um, to give this some colour, we aren't threatening to leave, just making a suggestion that we feel it is correct to leave, given the situation. We'd rather race all the way to fit to the finish in Milan, and if the next round of tests show it's safe to do that, we will. So that doesn't make sense. I mean, if it's if it's correct to leave, then leave <laughs> like I'm sure you could hold it up in court that it's an unsafe work environment if the UCI comes at you with some big fines, etc., which they'd be pretty stupid to do, but again, it is the UCI. David Lepertien's response to Vortas was basically no, but again, anything the UCI or Lepertien publishes is like some sort of hybrid between 1984 slash Gestapo-like mid-1950s publicist response, which doesn't make sense. And, yeah, but that's that's my own personal prefer- uh, preference on how things should be written. 
Lepertient correctly though said, no, we're not, we're not canceling the Giro right now. So let me know. Do you disagree with me? Do you think COVID's out of control at the Giro right now? It doesn't sound great from what the RCS have been doing. There's been a lot of misinformation about people releasing things about, oh, 17 police motorbikes have got COVID. Not the motorbikes, the people that ride them. But then it was at the Giro EU bike event. So then it's none of the police that are doing the Giro actually have COVID. You know, I've ranted for a long time about this. Have I been too unfair, Benji, or am I not taking this seriously enough? I agree in general. I just feel like this is just a trailer of what's about to happen because this is zero. We're now in week two. We're in a country that has less cases than, for example, Spain, who is starting a Grand Tour in a few days. So we're going to see this behavior even more in La Vuelta. I look at this from the glasses of someone who lives in a country that is most likely about to get a curfew or some type of lockdown. We're more limited and limited for the people. I personally don't mind. I sit at home every day anyway. I work at home. I, I podcast at home. So <laughs> it doesn't really influence me. But in general, it's probably going to influence a lot of people's lives. And I'm not really a scientist or anything. I don't know what the research about certain aspects of lockdowns and so forth and all the measures are saying i didn't dive into that too in-depthly i just hope that we can one do this all safely and two don't overreact either so we gotta find the balance in between and sometimes we cross that balance on one end sometimes we do it on another so let's hope we can just keep it somewhat all right in the middle there yeah, I agree, Benji. If the cases get and the positive tests get out of control on the second rest day, they obviously have to shut down the race. But let's wait until that happens as well, because I don't think we're we're quite there yet. And if teams, etc., identify that it's unsafe for their riders and they have more information than us, then they should obviously pull their teams out of the race uh, if that's possible. Which I think it is, because other teams have already done that. Yumbo Visma, for example. But that's all from us today. Uh, we're looking forward to Stage 13 tomorrow. This is our Giro Stage 12 recap brought to you by LaCole. Check them out on www.lacole.cc. Me and Benji will be back in your ears tomorrow. Ciao.